but we are going to turn in our Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, today, we're going to look at the first six verses, but what I want you to do is, uh, <laughs> what I want you to do is put your finger there and turn to Acts chapter 8, okay? So you're in the book of Isaiah, put your finger there and go to Acts chapter 8, and when you get there, stand to your feet so we can pray. Isaiah chapter 53 and Acts chapter 8. All right, Father God, we're just so wonderfully in awe of who you are. And it's our prayer today, Lord, that you would take our hearts, Lord, that we, and, and our mind, God, that we be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the washing of the water of your word. And so today, God, we pray that you would teach us, uh, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear you, that you would be magnified and glorified, Lord, that we might be edified, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat there? Isaiah chapter 53 brings into view the vicarious suffering of our Savior, God's servant, Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus is the suffering servant in view because over and over again throughout the New Testament, this chapter is quoted from and applied to Jesus. And so you're in Acts chapter 8. Allow me to turn your attention to the 26th verse. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. By the way, same Gaza that you're hearing about in the news today with regard to the Israel conflict and this and that. Go down uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went, and, and behold, a, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. It was customary. They would read out loud in that day. Don't have to, but it was customary. That's what they were doing. And so there he was, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And so uh, Philip, uh, the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So he ran, he heard the prophet Isaiah, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And when we read that, we think, wow, what a wonderful working knowledge of the word of God that Philip had. 
to begin right where a man is reading from and from there lead him to Jesus. But ladies and gentlemen, that's the primary point of the word of God, is it not? To lead us to Jesus Christ, who was the sacrifice, God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. For surely the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of mankind. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was put in place to demonstrate the deadly cost of sin, to make a covering for sin, but it could never truly cleanse mankind of sin. It was a foreshadowing of that which would be fulfilled in the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we read in the book of Hebrews, therefore, when he, that is Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body. Here's where it starts coming into focus for us. You've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Well, what is the will of God that he was in reference to? It was the will of God to be the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. He said, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. However, you'll note when we get next time to the 10th verse of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, what do we read? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul, that is his life, a sacrifice or an offering for sin. It wasn't the constant blood flow of bulls and goats that pleased God but the once for all sacrifice for sin willingly made by his own son, Jesus Christ. And surely that's what's in view for us. You can turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. It's what we see. In fact, we find in this chapter both the suffering and the satisfaction of God's servant. In the first nine verses, it speaks of his suffering in the last three verses, again, we'll see next time, uh, highlights his satisfaction. But I bring it up because it's a common thread that's woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it's always in this order, though perhaps other times different examples or illustrations are used. But the takeaway is this. Hear me on this. There are no shortcuts. Somebody needs to hear this. There are no shortcuts in fulfilling God's plan and entering into his reward. You'll hear phrases like, from trial to triumph, you know, the flower follows the rain, or the cross before the crown. You you hear these kinds of phrases. And so, if you're going through a time of tribulation, it's the rain season in your life, the heat is on, you're, you're in the fiery furnace, so to speak. Listen, you're in good company, because if God leads you to it, he'll always lead you through it, and satisfaction awaits you on the other side of it. The psalmist said it like this, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Praise God. So you're with me. Let's turn our attention to verse 1, beginning in Isaiah chapter 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we talked a little bit about this last time. We're grateful it's been revealed to you and to me, right? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant 
and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, we spent some time on verse 1 last week, so rather than kind of repeat what we've learned, let's consider the contrast that's set before us in the arm of the Lord, right, which is, is a picture we talked about rolling up the sleeves, getting to work, overcoming a, a, a great undertaking and this and that. But then right after that, he speaks of this tender plant and this root out of a dry ground. So from strength and power and all, we go to this image of humiliation and, and weakness. And guys, there's a few things that we can um, pick up on out of what we're reading here. The prophet is revealing to us some kind of some details as it pertains to the coming of the Messiah, and that when he would be born into the world, it wouldn't be under any particular impressive circumstances. Jesus wouldn't be born in a palace of a world empire with all the luxuries afforded to the person of royalty. In fact, if you remember right, when Jesus was born, the Davidic dynasty had all but been extinguished or had essentially been cut off in that they were no longer princes. Now they were all peasants. And Israel was not flourishing spiritually. God had not spoken to them in some 400 years. Uh, they weren't flourishing militarily or economically or politically. In reality, nationally, Israel was under the oppressive iron boot of Rome. Truly, from out of dry ground, the Messiah would come forth. Now, we also pick up some details of the Messiah's humanity in this section of Scripture. Now, Isaiah's already made known to us that Isaiah, that the Messiah would be fully God and, and fully man, but he's beginning to highlight some of the humanity. You remember back in chapter 9, for unto us a child is, is born, speaking of his humanity, and unto us a son is given, that is the Son of God, speaking of his deity, the Son of God would be born uh, into this world through the Virgin Mary. So you have fully God, you have fully man. And here we're beginning to learn some details of his humanity, this man, the Messiah, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Meaning, you know, there's nothing obvious about his person that would cause you to gravitate toward him like, wow, this is the one. This, I mean, just look at him. He's the guy. This, he's obviously the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Now, maybe you remember, I highlight this because perhaps you remember Israel's very first king. What was his name? Top 10 answers on the board survey says... You guys are some Bible students. We have Saul, the very first king, and you remember the Bible talks about him, how he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was just a good-looking man. There was just a, a kingly presence about his person. And so the people were drawn to him, and they wanted him to represent them. This is not who Jesus was. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't physically fit. You know, sometimes I think Bible teachers have a tendency to take this to an extreme that's really, there's no precedence for it in Scripture. 
It doesn't mean that he was below average in appearance. Uh, it's just to say that by design, he was not some hulking, handsome, honk of a man. You know, there wasn't a radiance about him. He wasn't what one would envision about a Messiah. You know, standing, standing like you think, wow, what would the Messiah, if, if, you know, how would this guy look? And you're thinking, you know, if it were me and I were going to bring the Messiah into the world, man, he's going to stand taller. He's going to be obviously stronger. He's going to surpass every man in appearance. No. In fact, if you remember right, when they went to arrest Jesus, Judas had to point him out so that they could be sure that they got the right guy. You know, Judas didn't say, well, just look for the tall, hulking, handsome man that has a slight distinguishing aura and glow about him. I mean, you can't miss him. No, he appeared so plainly ordinary, they couldn't pick him up out of the lineup. Now, his words and his works attracted multitudes. But physically speaking, guys, he just looked like an ordinary Jewish man of the day. He would not have been in the running for Hollywood's Sexiest Man Alive award. And this is why Isaiah likens him to a tender plant rather than a mighty oak. Not because he lacked in power. Oh no, he's the God of the universe. But because he was humble, he was meek, not weak. Never confuse meekness for weakness. He was, he was meek. He had no desire, no reason to present himself as all that. Now he was all that, but he had no desire, no reason to prove anything to anyone. But, what I want you to take heart in here today is the fact that out of, well, the words are dry ground, God brought forth something beautiful, something incredible, something beyond our ability to comprehend. That is his son, our savior, and the salvation of the world. You know, perhaps you feel like your whole life right now is a barren wasteland of dry ground. Well, you should know that you're in a prime place for God to do a wonderful work. And guys, it's almost like a theme is developing already, isn't it? Like the cross before the crown, suffering before satisfaction. And we serve a God who specializes in bringing life out of the barren, a root out of dry ground. But again, for the sake of context, let's remember, verse 1 points to the strong arm of God's salvation. Verse 2 begins to give us revelation or illumination. It's the counterintuitive way that God works. He would bring the strength of His salvation through what would appear to be weakness and humiliation. A man beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross and left there to die. Now, how does that work? Well, it's not the instinctive or the natural way that we would reason. Guys, we just don't think that way. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And His ways aren't our ways, are they? And so I brought it up last week, but it's worth repeating, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So that means God turns the reasoning and the wisdom of this world upon its head with the message of the cross. He made foolish the wisdom of this world. Now, Paul continues, you can write that down there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And he continues there saying actually that it's the wisdom of God to forbid man uh, to know him through worldly wisdom. In other words, God's not going to give bragging rights to anyone uh, saying that they somehow through their own initiative, their own meditation, their own uh, contemplation, through the wisdom of the sage, you see, somehow they figured out salvation. No, but rather it would please God that through the foolishness of the message preached, the man taken, beaten, nailed to a cross, left there to die, that somehow through the foolishness of the message preached, he would save those who believe. And so he says, for Jews request a sign. They were always asking Jesus for a sign to show, you know, somehow make manifest that we might believe. And he would say, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks a sign. And he says, Greeks seek after wisdom. You remember when Paul pulled up there at the Areopagus and all? And there they were debating and reasoning through all the things. And, and he's like, he begins to enter into their discussion. But he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God bringing the strength of his salvation through apparent weakness and humiliation. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So not only would the Christ not be desired, that's what it says in verse 2, but he would be despised there in verse 3. Two times in verse 3, we read that he is despised, he is rejected by men, he was despised and not esteemed, meaning that he would not be respected, he would be rejected. The apostle John said that like this, he said he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, there are undoubtedly a number of ways one could lean into this text. But the pattern that I seem to be picking up on, for our time, at least here today, is that the Lord would have us to know that he understands our sorrows. He understands your suffering. He knows what it means to not only be not respected, but to be completely rejected. He is, our word is, acquainted with, that is, has an experiential understanding of grief. Guys, there is not a place of pain, physically or emotionally, that Jesus is not intimately familiar with. He understands what you're going through. And this is one reason of several. Okay, but This is one reason that we should be eager to come to him 
and to pour our hearts out before him because he understands where you're at. And guys, there's just something about speaking to someone who's been where you're at. You know what I mean? There's a depth. There's a, there's a kinship that takes place there that you just can't really get any other way. Now, guys, I need to digress here for just a moment. Because there is a campaign out there that's gaining popularity. It's called He Gets Us. How many of you have heard of this one? Okay, so some, not all. That's why I say it's gaining popularity. It's called He Gets Us. And what they're saying is not what I'm saying. Okay? They are a group of people right there on their website, some of who believe, some of whom don't. They call themselves a diverse group of Jesus fans and followers with a variety of faith journeys with a common desire to share the story of Jesus' life in a new way. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have no desire to share the story of Jesus in a new way. Okay? There's nothing new under the sun. I think the way the Scriptures do it is just fine. Yes, Jesus taught love, but he also taught holiness. He taught righteousness. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He recognized that the message of the cross was intrinsically, by its nature, it's divisive. And that people need to make a choice to accept Him or to reject Him. To stand with Him and for Him or against Him. He did not come to affirm people in their sin or to say it's okay to lead a lifestyle that's bound by sin. He came to deliver us from our sin. And you've heard before, the grace of God that saves your soul will change your life. And so this organization, listen, they are not really representing Jesus so much as they are representing Jesus. Does that make sense? Seeking to make him more appealing to the world. Now, when I say that Jesus understands, I'm saying that he knows what you're going through. He's familiar with with your pain, and He desires to bring hope and healing to your heart and your lives. The author of Hebrews put it this way, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. No, we did not esteem him, that is, respect or regard him. We crucified him. We learned last week of the brutal beating that he endured. That when they were finished with him, he was virtually unrecognizable as a man. 
that you would be so startled, that you would be so stunned at his appearance, that your natural tendency when you would look at him, you see, would be to, to turn away. And that's what Isaiah is referring to here when he says, and we hid as it were our faces from him. And as one reads this, it kind of leaves the reader with the question, why? Why did this happen to him? What was the meaning behind the depths of his suffering? Well, look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ladies and gentlemen, not only are we in the heart of the passage, but this passage presents the heart of the gospel. I am not sure that the picture of a substitutionary sacrifice could be more plainly put. The Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah inserts plural pronouns and the principle of substitutionary sacrifice along with the categoric scope and the sufficiency of His work some 12 times throughout these three verses. I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah inserts plural pronouns and the principle of substitutionary sacrifice along with the categoric scope and the sufficiency of his work 12 times in three verses. This is the innocent dying on behalf of the guilty, the just for the unjust. This servant, our Savior, wouldn't die because of what he had done, but because of what we had done. Our transgressions, our iniquities, we have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, this is not a reference. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. This is not a reference to the fact that Messiah would take our guilt and God's wrath upon himself. Isaiah is getting to that. This is still leaning into the principle that Jesus understands our pain, that he made our miseries, our infirmities his own. He carried our sorrows, our griefs, as if they were His. Guys, I want you to think, picture in your mind the beast of burden, you know, perhaps a pack mule or something you've seen before, and they're loaded up with heaviness so that someone else would not have to bear the burden. That's what's happening here. That's the image happening here, that Jesus loaded up our burdens and our griefs and our sorrows, and He carried them on His back so that we wouldn't have to. It calls to my mind 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, casting all your care upon Him 
Every burden, every worry, you see, because He cares for you. The Lord would have us to cast all our cares, all our worries, all our anxieties upon Him. He's already bore them for you. He loves you. And He cares for you. How many times we carry around the weight of worry or depression or anxiety when He's already carried all of that heaviness on our behalf. He's taken the weight of all of those things upon Himself. Guys, we have to learn how through faith to release those things to Him. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. May God help us. But let's not miss this, guys. And we're not far from finished here. Though we did not desire Him, though we despised Him, though we hid, as it were, our faces from Him, everything He was enduring was for us. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. By the way, who is our closer today? Is it? Go ahead and begin to make your way full. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Guys, this is a curious statement. Truth be told, it's exactly accurate. Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. They were right about what they saw. What they missed, what they were blind to, is why they saw it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. Now, this word wounded literally means to to be bore through. uh, To be pierced. We're thinking hands and feet and side. It was on the account of our rebellion that he would be pierced through. The word bruised more literally means crushed. Jesus would be crushed under the weight of the sin of the world that was placed upon him as he hung upon the cross. He bore the weight. Can I make this personal? He bore the weight of your perversities, of your depravity, of your iniquity. He was punished by God so that you, so that I, that we, might have peace with God. He was punished by God so that you could have peace with God. Listen, guys, I can't even bear up under the weight of my own sin. How many of you can identify with that? Yes much less could I hope to bear yours. But the Lord, that is God the Father, laid on Him 
that is God the Son, the iniquity, again, the word is perversity, depravity, the sin, see, of us all. Jesus took the weight of the sin of every person who ever lived, ever would live upon himself. You see, this is the gospel. We have sinned. We have erred exceedingly and played the fool. We have set ourselves against God, at war with God, but God, somebody say amen to that, but God brings hope and help and healing and has made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself for us. And by his stripes, that is by his wounds, we, you and me, are healed. Now there's been much debate on this particular point. Does this speak of physical healing? Is he speaking about spiritual healing? We've just kind of touched on the kind of verses four and five, and we'll lean into verse six. Guys, we want to pick up on this point. We want to learn from this point, but we're going to save this point for next time. Okay? So let's bow our hearts. Humble ourselves in the sight of God. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. The sacrifice you so willingly made for us in the person of your son. And surely you were through the cross reconciling the world to yourself. And we thank you, Jesus, that it's in you that we have a high priest, a a savior, a, a good shepherd who is acquainted with our pain and our suffering and our worries and our anxieties. And I pray, God, for every heart here that you would teach us to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us and that you will take care of us. And may we honor you in coming boldly before your throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And Lord, I can't think of a single moment in which we don't need you. Help us, strengthen us, and be glorified in us. And guys, while we're here and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I guess you know, I would be remiss to not give you an opportunity to respond to the message of the gospel. Jesus bore the guilt of your sin, the shame of your sin, the weight of your sin. He paid the penalty of your sin. And freedom awaits you through faith in Him. I would just encourage you, don't be found fighting against the grace of God. Humble yourself before Him and receive the salvation so freely given by Him in Jesus Christ. God loves you. And He has thoughts of peace, not of evil toward you to give you a future and a hope. Why? Why fight against it? Surrender wholeheartedly to it. 
Give God your heart right here, right now. Why not? I don't want you to think about who's beside you, around you, or what is this person going to think about me? Listen, what does God think? What's happening between you and him? That's, that's what you need to be thinking through. Because your eternal destiny weighs in the balance of the decision of what you do with Jesus Christ. Will you receive him or will you reject him? And I don't know. If everybody here knows the Lord, loves the Lord, I think that's amazing, that's wonderful. But if you're here and you don't know the Lord, that is, you've never truly humbled your heart and given your life to the Lord, then I want to encourage you right here and right now to make that move. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart, would you just say, yeah, this moment here right now is for me. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if that's you. If I see your hand, I'll say so, and you could put it back down. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily here to draw attention to you in any form or fashion, but I do want to pray for you. I don't care how young you are, how old you are, God bless you. Anyone else, today's the day of salvation for you. Well, Father, we're so humbled and honored. We're so grateful for your word that teaches us that when even one would repent, that the angels of heaven rejoice. So I'm just going to encourage you, and maybe you're here and something was stirring, something was brewing in your heart, and but something was holding on to your hand, you know. Well, listen, you haven't missed the opportunity. You can just ask the Lord to save you, to set you free. That hope and healing would find you right here, right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And just tell him, Lord, here I am and I, I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. And I'm asking you, forgive me of my sin to come into my heart to heal my broken heart and to fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to lead my life for you to live out loud to be bold for you and thank you O oh God for putting my name in your book of lives be glorified in me And Father, that's the prayer of every heart here, that you would be glorified in us. And so we humble ourselves before you. And we trust in you. Have your way in us. And we'll render praise to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.